This is episode number 191 of the Rising Man podcast with Rainier Wild. Is there life before death? Welcome back, Rising Man fam. Thank you for jumping in here again for another episode of the Rising Man podcast. I am Jetty Azuma checking in here, hosting another episode of the Rising Man here today. Before we jump into today's guests, make sure you cruise over to risingman.org slash ignite. Check out our 12-week online course that we launched just at the beginning of this year. If you haven't checked it out yet, this is the one-stop shop launch pad to help you up-level in your life. If you're that guy who's been sitting around, listening to the podcast, waiting to jump into the game, this is the perfect entry point. Trust me. If you're looking to clarify your values, if you're looking to get more clear on your vision, your purpose, who you are as a man and where you stand, how to draw boundaries, so many things that so many of us have a challenge with, then Ignite is the way for you. Head over to risingman.org slash Ignite and get yourself signed up today. Okay, my guest today is a returning guest coming back for round two, Mr. Rainier Wild. He's an experienced teacher, writer, and speaker. Rainier has embraced life for all that it is. He has celebrated its highs and learned from its lows. He's managed a Fortune 500 company and built businesses. He's also elegantly blown them up, burned them down, and started over from scratch. He holds a master's degree in psychology and has spent countless hours working with men and women in navigating the human soul. Through the various positions he's held, he's discovered that life must be claimed in order for it to hold any worth. His work is to inspire others to live fully and deeply in the here and now. In this episode, Rainier and I dropped in after nearly two years since our last podcast conversation. We started deep by examining father wounds and what holding space for others means as a responsibility and a privilege. Rainier spoke of the avalanche of society and how our ancestors may have opted out of civilization instead of suffering the crumbling of it, as so many historical narratives have suggested. We discussed how society has been teaching us that isolation is okay, that you're codependent if you need contact and support, and why it's essential for us to reframe that story. And lastly, we dropped into grieving the loss of village, how this is happening behind the scenes and how it can inform and influence where we go during uncertain times. Without further ado, Rainier Wild. All right, Rising Man fam, I've got a returning guest coming back from way back. We thought maybe maybe almost two years ago since you've been on the show, but Mr. Rainier Wild coming in live from the Portland, Oregon area. Such an honor to be here with you today, man. Uh, it is so good to be back, to see your face, to hear your voice. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Since, since I saw you last, man, like actually one-to-one here the, I told you the hair, the beard looking more fierce, the, you got the hat and, and the poncho, you're like evolving right before our eyes, man. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like a, a character from a Western right now. The truth is I was just a little too lazy to do my hair. So I threw my hat on and a little too lazy to get into clean clothes. So I threw a poncho on. So there you go. There's authenticity for you. There's authenticity, but it's working for you, whatever that. 
Now, since you've been here before, man, uh, obviously folks will get to know you in the intro. One of the big things that's coming up for you right now is you've been working on a book. What's the process of working on a, on the book been like? Maybe can you tell us the title or is that something you're keeping under wraps? No, I can absolutely tell you. Um, as you are, meditations on self and other. I love this question. I've actually not been asked this, like, what's the process for writing a book? And maybe I'd even back off and say, like, what's the process for writing uh, in general for me? I think Ernest Hemingway said something that just, it got stuck in my craw somewhere. And Hmm. he said, if I can just write one honest sentence, Hmm. I think that's it for me. Like, can I write one honest sentence? And a, a lot of people sometimes ask, you know, like, are you for real? I'm like, those sentences, <laughs> those words that tumble out of me, mm. that's not just a thought. That's not just a concept. That mm. is me. And, you know, most often it's born either late at night or early in the morning. And it's me picking up my modern typewriter, this phone, and it's me doing the equivalent of what my father did on his typewriter when he took his two little index fingers and he chicken pecked, you know, words on that typewriter, except I do it with thumbs on a screen on my phone. And I craft something, craft something that isn't independent of me. It's reflective of me. And I don't remember who said it, but it's, it's that sense of cutting open a vein and bleeding. It's turning over the compost of my own life over and over and over. And what I've discovered is that if I can locate that one true place inside of me, if I can locate that story, that story that actually cuts me to the quick, that if I can feel it and then share it with others, that what happens inevitably is that they hear their own story. They don't hear my story. They hear their story Mm. and something so incredible happens like freedom. And I hear it over and over. I hear it when people say, oh my God, I read that story about your son, the one where he was born with only seven minutes of oxygen in his lungs and how you, you know, you sat beside his crib and you read, you know, history books to him for five weeks and, and you didn't get to hold him. And then I was right there and it made me think of, and then they'll tell me their story and And then they'll inevitably wrap up by saying, and today I just feel a little bit more like I can be alive. And that's why I do this. Because if I share my story and you share your story and it ends in something like freedom to live, God, that's power. So that's the writing process for me in a Mm. nutshell. It's so beautiful the way you articulated that, man. I was looking for myself in that experience. Sometimes I grapple with the idea because I find that the most value comes through when I am being authentic about my experience, when I'm not trying to make a point or trying to capture the teachable moment, but just being in the honesty of the experience. And then of course, sharing what I, what I've taken away from it, but leaving it open-ended enough for someone to see themselves in it. More like a Mad Libs poem, you know, those Mad Libs that you do, or you kind of, you give the template and somebody else can fill it in with what they have. I find that that's the most impactful way for me to convey and express my story and always uh, unequivocally when people feel like they can connect with it the most, when they're given the opportunity to see themselves in it. And I know just as a, as a content creator, somebody who's putting stuff out there, sometimes I grapple with how can I find the thing that's going to reach the most people? How can I find the thing that's going to 
open up the greatest volume of space in somebody else and, and actually miss the point. You know, there's a, it's almost like this game we've gotten into, or at least I speak my, for myself, but I think a lot of us have gotten into where we're trying to extract the most from every single moment that it, it filters out and dilutes the authenticity of it, of what actually wants to come through. And I, I haven't written a book myself, but the creative process and witnessing other people in the creative process has, has revealed that much to me that maybe just being in what's there is enough. And it doesn't have to have such, such a, a large expectation behind it or wrapped up in it. I think you hit the nail on the head for me. And it, it's funny that you say it that way, because I think that some of the, my favorite things that I've ever written, my favorite essays or articulations of truth are ones that got really, really low levels of likes. Like it was almost <laughs> like totally panned by people. People were like, meh, like not today, Satan, you know, but like for the ones that I kind of thought, well, you know, here's a throwaway. I remember one time I posted this thing and I was like, ah, this is okay. You know, this is like today's, today's okay word of the day. And I put it out and then all these very large accounts picked it up. And I'm like, what? This is the absolute worst of what I am about. <laughs> and so I really put very little into that feedback loop other than there are times when I know that I tapped into something so real and so authentic, so transparent. And then other people feel that, whether that mm -hmm. ever communicates in numbers you know, that's almost, that's almost inconsequential to me. Mm -hmm. Numbers are a funny game, especially on social media. And I think I continue to come back to that place mm -hmm. of one true sentence, right? Was it true? You know, I, I do use social media, Instagram, for instance, as sort of my scratch paper, rough draft world. That's where I'm working over my rough drafts. So a lot of the things that I share there are my first take on a thought they're the the first thing that i'm that i'm thinking and then i'll i'll actually continue to rework it over and over one time someone <laughs> had the humorous instinct to comment on one of my posts i already read this i love that i was like yeah i know now you're reading the second draft buddy you know i was reworking that thought and so i'll do that a lot i'll post something i'll share something that's my first take on it and then i'll sit and i'll think about it for months and then i'll say okay what if i changed it what if i what if i made this a little more direct what if i took out that so that that experience of social media it really isn't me selling something Right? That's not me trying to get likes or followers or anything like that. That's really me honing that craft and developing the practice of writing. Mm. I love that, man. It's actually really helpful for me because I, ah, oh, man, I have this love-hate relationship with, with social media and more hate than, than love at this point in my life because it's, it's not the way that, pro that process you just described it doesn't occur for me to write it down and find a picture that associates with what I want to say and post it at a specific time with a certain number of characters. It doesn't occur for me that way. Yet, I still see the function of it. There's, there's a way that we are learning to be in relationship with each other that's more virtual than in person, which 
is not my preference, but it's what we have available in large part right now. But it's it's just really helpful to, to look at that. And I've had to do this myself to really let go of whatever it, ne- whatever it is and let it be what it needs to be for myself. And that people will find the benefit in that or not and keep moving on just like I do with what other people are putting out there into the world. And that, you know, I think to pivot this into a, a little bit of a larger topic here, I see society right now really redefining itself. If we were, if the human population were one organism and each one of us were different cells, it's almost like a person going under a complete transformation, like a, like a one organism, just redefining itself, looking at itself, examining itself, deciding that it's worthy or unworthy and all the it just feels like that for me. It feels like there's this huge period of transformation in the way that we are and what we're doing that the conversations that one of us is having on our Instagram is a small micro example of the greater thing that's happening. And we're redefining things like race. We're redefining manhood and fatherhood and parenting and politics and self-governance in all new ways. And I think in large part, it feels very chaotic to me. How does it occur for you? This is such a fascinating time to be alive. I often approach things like a like an anthropologist, which is one of the areas of study that has always fascinated me. But fascinating doesn't go far enough. The truth of our times, I think, is not that we're redefining what it's like to be a post-Victorian era culture. It's not that we're redefining what it's like to be a post-colonial culture. It's not even that we're redefining what it's like to be a post-enlightenment culture. I actually think the questions that we're facing today have to do with the core of a project that is roughly 8,000 years old, which is civilization itself. Listen, we stumbled on certain technologies across the past 20,000 years as humans that when put together uniquely about 8,000 years ago, these technologies of agriculture, militarism, hierarchy, patriarchy, therapeuticism, that when we put these technologies together in the unique way we put them together as a mechanism for stabilizing and controlling our circumstances, that what happened was we experienced an unprecedented flourishing on our planet as a species. At the same time, we made great trade-offs <laughs> and we didn't exactly know what trade-offs we were making. We didn't exactly understand what reasonable risks we were undertaking. And I think we lost elements of what it meant to be quintessentially human in this civilizational determination that we made. We stepped blindly forward into a set of possibilities, not knowing what the cost would be. And I think we have learned very painfully the cost and are now facing down the effects of the trade-offs we made. That's what I think we're living in today. I think we're actually living in the 8,000-year avalanche, and we're at the bottom of the hill. The snowball has been rolling and we're now experiencing the whirlwind. It's breaking on us. And so when I look at our our world today, I think that really we're dealing with these massive conflagrations of chaos and control coming together. And most of us are just hanging out in the valley as these two armies sweep down upon us. We're caught in the middle and we don't know what to do. We don't know who to believe. We don't know what to think. We don't know where we locate ourselves 
if we even have a self, because we've been so programmed by these outside forces to think, to do, we don't even know how to think. Mm -hmm. I realized that was one giant breath right there and I'm going to pause, but I think that's where we find ourselves. And it, it really is the most extraordinary time to be alive. I think in the past 8,000 years. Mm. Yeah. Well, I'm going to roll with the metaphor of the avalanche. It's funny you said that because when you said avalanche, it sparked a memory that I had a dream about being at the bottom of an avalanche just a couple nights ago. And I really think the dream space is powerful. So that was interesting. But going mm -hmm. along with, with that metaphor of the valley and so many of us being stuck in this valley with the sides of the valley closing in down on us. I think about, well, where, where am I? Where, where am I as an individual in that process? And I, 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 what it feels like to me is I'm, I'm finding my way up towards a plateau that's out mm -hmm. of the valley. And I'm bringing my family with me, my, my direct family and the people that I consider family. And then in the greater community, I'm, I'm calling other people out of the valley so that they won't get crushed. And so that we can look at how, we, and, and then banding together now that we're on the rim of chaos, how can we reestablish ourselves? How can we take care of ourselves and each other in a different way than we ever have before? I, I mentioned this a couple of episodes back. Uh, have you ever read the book, Tribe by Sebastian Younger. I love Tribe by Sebastian Younger. Such an amazing book. Yeah, really, really good one. One thing that really screamed to me in, in that text was when he talks about being an adolescent and his desire for chaos. Like there was like an innate desire for chaos simply to coerce everyone to, to band together. I felt like I've had that my whole life. And at different times, I've had different feelings about that because I'm like, well, I don't want to wish for chaos. But I've always wanted people to come and band together. And, and that's what Rising Man has really become a reflection of. It's become a reflection of, hey, we can do this differently. It requires that we be different and act different and think different, but we can be with each other differently. There's actually many examples throughout the course of human history of us doing life differently and more collaboratively, closer together, but it requires resources like trust and integrity and responsibility that aren't high priorities, have not been high priorities in previous generations. Let's just say that much. You know, a, a great example of this is the indigenous peoples in South America. Anthropologists and historians look at these giant Incan ruins and they often wonder you know, how did the civilization collapse? How did these ancient civilizations such as this collapse? It seems like they're almost fully intact in a sense. The cities look as if people just disappeared one day out of them. And of course, mm -hmm. Daniel Quinn, a really wonderful anthropologist and writer and an inspiration to so many of us with his writings, such as Ishmael, he makes the great observation Maybe they did just walk away. Maybe it actually had to do with them looking at the cost of inhabiting the ways of life that they did, and they walked back into the forests. And I think that this is one of the, the more beautiful hypotheses of these, of these places that maybe it is possible to look at one another and say the rewards don't outweigh the risks. Mm. And what if we simply left? Terrifying. 
I think the word that comes to mind is that that's terrifying for some people. And I think about this a lot because I'm a little bit of a closet. You help me with the word. Like I, not that I want society to break down, but I'm ready for it. (laughs) I don't know what that, I don't know what that word would be, but I'm like, I see it coming and there's a part of me that's rooting for it, for it to be transformative. But I also recognize that there's going to be some significant costs to that. I'm sure it's going to cost, at a minimum, it's going to cost a way of life. It's going to be very uncomfortable for some people. I'm sure it's going to result in a lot of illnesses and and ailments of the body, mind, and soul. I think Mm. it's also going to result in death and the, and the, the termination of life for some people who aren't able to adjust to it. And we look at things like the Hopi prophecy of, mm. of, of a small population of people taking one path and the rest follow, taking another path and walking off of a cliff that it's interesting you bring up Daniel Quinn. Ishmael was one of the first books I read when I, I think I was probably 24 when a friend of mine gave it to me and I read it and I was like, yeah, this is what I'm talking about. This is what I'm seeing. And it's like when you learn something and you come to know it, you can't not know it. I haven't been able to take that lens off ever since I started thinking that way. And again, I don't, I don't desire for it to break down, but I also am a firm believer that discomfort and adversity is what develops strength and resilience over time. Yeah. You know, I think obviously we would never wish rampant destruction. I also think that when you look at the world today, we are seeing rampant destruction. We're seeing a pandemic of fear. We're seeing a epidemic of dis-ease where we can no longer live with ourselves in our own skin. Mm. One One of the elements that is becoming so painfully visible today is our profound isolation. And then we're taught culturally, uh, we're, we're taught, I think, to become okay with that, to just mm. you know, deal with that. And if you can't deal with it, something's wrong with you. You're depressed. You're needy. You're codependent. Right? I'll never forget when a friend <laughs> confided in me. He said, oh, I'm, I'm so sad. I'm just so absolutely depressed as I consider the fact that I'm a needy person who just unfortunately is too clean. And I said, what in the world do you mean? He said, well, I just got back from summer camp with my kids and, and, you know, I was boating every day with them and we were hanging around the campfire and the other dads and all this, it was so wonderful. And, and I'm just so sad now that it's over and I wish I wasn't so needy. (laughs) And I laughed and I said, man, I think you're just grieving the loss of village. And I think the The collective way that we walk along in life is a grief for the loss of the village, the loss of tribe, the loss of community. And we taste it at some moments. We go to a we go to a workshop where we feel suddenly united across common understandings, or we go to a initiatory rite, or we go to a, an event, or we even connect across Zoom and there's something magical that happens and we feel a little less alone. We feel a little more at home in our humanity, which is always a shared experience. And then it disappears, it evaporates, and we go back to normal. We go back to our jobs, we go back to our lives, we go back to paying bills that we we probably didn't make or didn't plan on making, you know, paying for, for educations that we're unsure if we needed in the first place that don't get us ahead, spouses that we don't really experience a deep communion with, 
it becomes very, very exhausting very, very quickly. I think that's the time we live in. I think people are collectively having that question mark bubble over their head where they're saying, is this it? Oh, man. I mean, you're totally speaking my language. And I agree with you that that's my assessment of society, too, is that most of us are unconsciously grieving the loss of village and community, so much so that it lives and it exists in our DNA. It rumbles in our in our bloodstream and asks us for more of that. But then the brain pollutes it or, or clogs it or, or matches it with a story of what we've been either been led to believe or have decided to believe to survive in modern civilization. So I, I, I agree with you, man. That's, that's what I witness. And I do think that we're all, maybe we're just reaching a tipping point where unless we recreate that, we're not going to want to be around anymore. I mean, the, the, fer- the very fact that we have suicide as such a large representation of how people exit life in our society, right? I mean, I think that's, that alone is a reflection that, hey, something's not working here. We've got people who are choosing to exit life rather than be in it. Does that change when people feel connection? Does that change when we have a sense of village and support and a space where people's physical, mental, and emotional health can be cared for? And that not just that they're expected to suck it up and figure it out for themselves. I mean, it's it's sad, man. It's it's it feels like a devastating thing to talk about, you know, that we're that reflecting that we're in this space. And the only the only solace I find in it is that, well, my heart is still beating and I can still be a part of the solution, even if I don't know exactly what it is right now. Yeah. You know, that despair, that sense of of hopelessness that can come so easily when we don't know how to progress, when we don't know how to proceed. And what do we do? We kind of just go back. Like we go back to the way things were. I think you talked about checking out of life. You know, this is what's so interesting. I mean, I would metaphorize it by saying now, one of the biggest and most central questions to my work is not, is there life after death, but is there life before death? Mm. And I think that's the question so many of us are asking. You probably received that from so many men yourself. You know, is there life before death? Can I make choices that affect? the world, my world, first of all, other people's lives. I think that's probably the biggest thing that the people kind of come to me to ask about, which is, can I confidently make decisions that impact my world? We're talking about power here. We're talking about power. You know, power is really the ability to impact one's world. Of course, I think we conflagrate force and power all the time. The truth is there's a distinction. Force is the taking away of power, (laughs) so to speak. But I want power and I want you to have power. I want everybody to have power. I want people to have the power to impact their worlds, to shift things, to make decisions. And unfortunately, today, I think we live in such a scripted time where we have become both in the sense of being programmed, but also then we've steadily made choices to allow ourselves to be disempowered. Mm. Yeah. And Mm so I think the despair that follows that, I love what you said, you know, if I can just focus on making a few things, making a few choices and begin to take steps, simple steps, and they're usually so simple, right? Mm -hmm. Something magical is possible. I've seen it. You've seen it in our own lives. You can begin to write a new story. Mm. Well, let's make it personal, man, because uh, I feel like I talk a lot about my personal journey and how I am p- 
putting my efforts towards recreating village into this into this podcast. But I, I'd like to ask you what that looks like for you. You know, what what do those tangible steps look like? How are you arranging your life to recreate that? And then and then maybe as an extension of that, how are you encouraging others in your community to do that? Yeah. You know, in my late teens, I think the single largest question that I was asking was, is there such a thing as community? And there was no more potent question for me. I had grown up sort of all around the United States and really didn't have a sense of permanence, didn't have a sense of tribe. And I felt that dis-ease so acutely Together with several other friends, we, we created a beautiful and flourishing community that lasted for about a decade. It, it grew me up, so to speak. In my 20s, we co-housed, we co-farmed, we tried so many different iterations. We worked together, we played together, we, we cooked together, we shared life together for roughly a decade. I had a, a particular group of men ranging from anywhere from six to to 12 solid, dedicated men who I met with two times a week. And that's on top of the fact that we were often working together or sharing lives together, breaking bread together. This was the real gift of that early adulthood stage for me. When I left that stage and, you know, community always has a shelf life. I think that's one of the things that people don't know about organic tribe, organic community is that, you know, like any life form, it is born, it grows up, it has a sense of maturity to it, and then it gets old and it passes away. And ours also passed away. And I think one of the things that I would say in reflection of that is that if people are out there creating communities, creating tribe, create communities and and tribes that not only live well, but die well, Mm. you know, create communities and tribes where you can look at one another and be willing to say when the spirit is gone rather than fight for it and get ugly about it and, and desperately cling on to that, which no longer has life, be able to let something go. And you let something go so that something else will come. I then began to pour into my own education, began to grow in an individual way, because this is really the, the pendulum, right? There's always these two sides, enlightenment and entwinement, right? Self-individuation and then collective considerations. And so going from that communal experience, I began to then ask the question, can I be a self? Can I be a self in this world? I've stood shoulder to shoulder with a band of brothers. Can I be, can I be a solitary soul? The great answer is no, right? None of us are created as islands, but it was a wonderful experience to begin to learn how to take a stand, how to take responsibility for that stand and to make an impact in my world. Well, skip ahead now, well over a decade today. I think one of the things that that is true in our world is there are a great many isolated individuals. I think, first of all, the work of community must begin with the individual. 
It must begin as an individual self who isn't looking to deflect choices or responsibility by being in relationship to others. That's one of the great risks of community, you know, of course, that you would deflect your autonomous decision making for the collective. And I think that's one of the things we see today. But that really, as a self, you would take a stand and that you would be in relationship to others. So I do that, as many do today, through a wide and distributed network. I have, first of all, what I call my front line, my four or five brothers who we are absolutely just entwined together. And I always ask that kind of the questions that Sebastian Younger asked, right? And defined by tribe, you know, shared, shared identity shared resources and shared defense. And I think that those are are sort of the elements of tribe and the commitments we give to one another. I'm not afraid to call you my brother. I'm not afraid to be in relationship to you in a very public way to be identified with you. If you are down and out, I literally am one cash app button away from money in your bank account or for bread on your table. And if you ever need defense, I have your back, whether that's in a social media way or, or a physical way. I'm there. And so we define ourselves as tribe. They know me. They know me for my greatness. They know me for my shittiness. They know both sides. And that's really important. So that, that's the first and most primal element for me. People who absolutely see me for all the, the, the mystical or magical elements, and then for the mundane elements as well, that they see me. And then from that, to be a beacon, I think we live in a very dark time. And so for me to exist in community with others is to send out that pulse of light and to begin to call others into community, both for themselves and then together with you. You know, one of the things that's really exciting right now is I, um, I wrote a book as you are meditations on self and other. And it's really talking about a lot of these things. And I'll tell you, one of the most exciting things about this book, as we were talking about earlier, is I actually get now to be in people's living rooms, whether I'm in their living room or not. I'm now in their living room and now I'm having a conversation with them and I'll get these notes you know, like from the Instagram posts and, or people getting now these advanced copies and they'll, they'll say things like, oh my God, this is touching me in ways that you wouldn't imagine, or this reminds me. Of. And so they're saying these things and that's wonderful. And I've got to tell you the really sneaky goal, the really sneaky goal is to be able to pop up in people's cities and host parties centered around this object of a book, which is really just an excuse to have faces meeting other faces and souls mm. meeting other souls saying, oh my God, I'm not alone. Hmm. That's really the sneaky, the sneaky thing happening here. And I think I just outed myself to the world. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you did, man, because I think that's, that's a beautiful intention to have, you know, pulling people together. And I love that idea of you being in people's living rooms with them, you know, because they're, they're reading your words and it's, it's affecting them in this very modern, <laughs> very modern way that our, our DNA is catching up to perhaps. I want to back up just a couple of steps because there's a couple of things you said that until you really flushed it out, it, it brought me to pause when you were talking about the, the dying of community. 
I recognize that there's a resistance in that for me because so much of my foundational beliefs and my orientation in life is to recreate village and to, to create that in a way that's not just for me, not just for my family in a moment, but that becomes a legacy. There's a part of me that really believes that that is not necessarily the way, but at least a way through all of these challenging times. And so as I listened to you a little bit more deeply, I, I, what I was listening for myself was that there are people and community circles along the way that clearly no, were no longer a fit in that. And if the, if the tenacity for this vision of village and community supersedes my own discernment, then it, it'll either stunt the growth of it or it'll create something that's, that's not actually the thing. So I, I don't know if that's what was wrapped up in some of what you were saying, but I, I definitely have a lot of resistance towards re re regressing or reverting back to an individuation or a nuclearization of family. And I don't necessarily think that's what you were saying, but that's, that was like what came up in me all at once. I was like, no Rainier, no, we need a, we need village again. Don't you see? <laughs> so I thought I would share that. And then I just asked for some clarification on that. Maybe there's a more, for, more for you to say about it. So good. You know, during that wonderful period of time uh, there in my 20s, one of the things that I wanted to do as a keen student was to begin to talk to those who had gone before me, tribes and villages. And I was very privileged to meet a lot of individuals who had been leaders going all the way back to the counterculture movement in the 60s of the communities and these networks that had existed, most of which did not exist anymore. Mm. And, you know, one of the things I heard over and over and over from these individuals who would look at me with this twinkle in their eye was enjoy it, mm. enjoy it, and maybe even enjoy it while it lasts. And I was always a lot like you, very resentful of that comment. And I, I was always like, you know, Oh, ours will last, buddy. You guys planted that wrong. You guys did something. We'll figure it out. We'll, you know, that was kind of like my sense of, um, mm -hmm. I understand now what they meant. I understand now that again, all of these things are organic and the truth of life is its impermanence. The truth of life is it's, it's complete and utter impermanence. So that when something so beautiful, you know, like, like a hummingbird, landing in front of your window and holding there for just a moment when it happens you know you don't rush out there with a net and try and put it in the cage you enjoy it you delight in it in that moment do i think we should ever go back well no you know absolutely not relationships community tribe that is the way forward and i don't just mean that for like guys like you and me, I mean that as a species, if there is a way out of this toxic civilizational project that we exist within, it is through the disparate networks of clan and tribe and village. That is so important to a sense of forward momentum as a species. I think we will see a great degree of more localism in that sense. But as far as on an individual level, those tribes or those networks, I think that we will simply see a lot of exceeding their boundaries and then receding again, expand and contract, expand and mm -hmm. contract. We'll see communities form. We'll see them disappear. And I think that's appropriate. 
we're trying things on and those things will be impermanent you know one of one of the people who really always inspired me to think about community was a theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer and he said something really interesting he was from World War II era and he was writing about community and he said the man who loves community will kill community right mm. and what's he mean it's like if i hold this set of ideals about what it must be and what it needs to look like and how it, that i'll actually destroy the thing that i love because i'll always try and make it exactly what i imagine it to be and i won't be able to enjoy the thing as it is mm. so i suppose i kind of worship the god change <laughs> you know the god impermanence chaos as we talked about in some ways and yeah. And that impermanence is really important. And I think it enables me to enjoy the beauty and the profundity of each moment, including those specific incarnations of tribe as they appear in our lives. Yeah. Well, I'm glad I asked for clarification because that's definitely closer to the way that I hold it and have had to learn to hold it over the years. I believe that I was very much a person who loved community so much that I would destroy it unknowingly in the first few iterations of it myself, the it's like being in a relationship where there's genuine love and there's even if there is still love that exists, but sometimes recognizing when it is time to just move on because it's even if there is still love in the relationship doesn't mean that there's promise for the future for the relationship. And so I've had some of those tough moments and it's it's brought me into these existential moments of man if 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 this didn't work is it is it even possible is that even the way do I have it all wrong it brings up those questions of doubt and after a few cycles of that, I've always come back to, well, it's, it's, it really is a refinement. And what I hear you calling myself and whoever else might be in that place into is soaring up to a, a larger perspective, the greater scheme of things. When I try to think about this conversation in the context of multiple lifetimes, multiple generations, and that's where I, I put my efforts to try and come from. The, the selfish part of me that wants to just be in the experience of village the way I imagine it definitely has a voice at the table. But overall, I think it's a bigger conversation of what are we, how are we setting up future generations by choosing to put a greater emphasis on localization, on reduction, on decentralization, and actually creating relationships that can hold water, that can hold their value and their merit over time, instead of these fleeting fast food relationships that we have from one moment to the next. And social media is bringing people together, but is it really? So yeah, that's where I arrive with it. Yeah. And, and really, again, to, to kind of drive this home, that's why those moments, those flash moments where you're giving people a taste of something more, I think are so important. You know, again, whether that's a workshop or an initiation weekend or, or even a book tour moment, whatever it is, you know, I think of Burning Man. You think of how Burning Man has impacted people across the years, right? What has it done? Well, most everyone I've ever known who's gone to Burning Man comes back and is like, I'm quitting my job, I'm selling my car, and I'm living different. Well, why? Because they were given a taste of something different, mm-hmm. right? They were given a foretaste. So I think we live in a society that is, is as you said, questioning everything. So if we could create these little environments, these micro moments that might be on Instagram, sure, it may be, but it probably has to do with these moments where we step into the same room 
we step into the same plane and we look at one another and a new world isn't just possible, a new world is already here. Hmm. And when we have that, it gives us that foretaste and we can then imagine new forms of living, new forms of being that were previously unimaginable. That's really exciting. I hope to, to begin to to see that in new ways, guys like you, guys like others who I see doing this work, and I, I'm so inspired by it. And I think to myself, this is that new world already come to pass. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Dude, this conversation is taking me on a journey. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> uh, I'll be, I'll take a moment of transparency. And like I told you before we started recording, I was coming out of a conversation with someone in, in our rising man community that was, that had a lot of charge to it, that that brought up a lot of questions about how are we doing as a community? You know, even just looking at objectively rising man as a community largely exists in the virtual space. The core of it is more than that because of the men that have stepped up to help me hold it. The guys that I lead with, that I work with, they are also my family and I, I'm grateful for that experience. But the greater network of the rising man community exists as zeros and ones that get transmitted into our ears or into our eyeballs. And just the reality of that and the challenge that that presents has brought this question up for me that I've been (laughs) just been ringing in my ears ever since I jumped on here with you of what are we actually doing? And what I'm leaving with in this conversation in this moment is, is, is very close to what I just heard you say is giving a different experience of a possibility a different experience of what it could look like and even some some tools that can be applied to creating it that way because i don't have i'm very realistic i don't have any fantasy that the rising man community five years from now is going to be 200 men and their partners living on one piece of land. <laughs> you know, I, I imagine it, that it will be some sort of network that exists where we rally together. But I, I see even the men who are part of our community now at the core that we are all seeds that can then be sprinkled into gardens all over this planet that can spring up different versions of village and community, but that can also have a common language and a way of being that brings us back together. And that's my greater vision for the world too, is that in the decentralization of government and the contra- not contraction, but the remodeling of civilization as we know it begins with seeds of people who can say, hey, how about this? And they start talking and it draws people in. And before you know it, they're creating these versions and iterations of community until we get something that fits and sticks, you know? So powerful really to think about that we exist in a parenthetical moment with question marks and darkness on all sides and the void at the center. Really, I think we go full circle that the experience we are in right now is one of unparalleled and unprecedented possibility. That as all of these questions and all of these fears and uncertainties and and, and indeed, calamities, real, real stretching of the very fabric that we thought was reality. It gives those who have ears to hear an opportunity to begin to not just imagine that a new world is possible, but that a new world is already here and a new world is breaking through. Hmm. And I think that's pretty powerful. Heck yeah, man. What a great punctuation mark to take the bookmark and place it into the center of the book for 
whenever we can get to get together for the next chapter, man. Uh, Absolutely. I just want to say I really appreciate you. And it, I told you this before we started recording, but you are so easy to communicate with for me. I really am deeply inspired by the way that you're living your life and, you know, being a father of four children. I don't think we said that on the recording yet. Just Rainier has four children that he's stewarding <laughs> in the world. <laughs> um, you're just doing some incredible things, man. And, and I wish you the best for your, for your book and for all the things that you're creating, putting out into the world. Take one more moment just to speak into the book and where people can go to look for that. However, you'd like to promote yourself here. Yeah. Well, please go over to Amazon and look in the books section for As You Are, Meditations on Self and Other. That's where you can find the book. You can also find me on any given day sending out those first drafts on Instagram, these little smoke signals to the world, these little fire lights flashing into the sky, hopefully signaling to others there are safe places to come and begin to have these conversations too. You can find me at Rainier Wild on Instagram. And then, yeah, just drop a note. Would love to connect to you. Would love to, to engage more around these topics. Awesome, man. Well, again, wishing you the best. Look forward to seeing how your wisdom continues to unfold and unfurl as the journey continues and look forward to catching up with you again further down the road, man. Uh, thank you so much. All right, everybody, make sure you go cruise over to risingman.org. Check out the links and resources for this episode and every episode there at the website. And while you're there, make sure you check out all the other opportunities we have for you to become a bigger part of the Rising Man movement. Please subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to us and our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash the Rising Man movement. Big ups to my power team, my leadership team, the whole Rising Man community and everyone out there listening for helping us lift up this message and send our mission out into the world. Thank you. Until next time, rise up and claim your destiny.